If you're listening to this podcast, it means you're ready, no, more than ready, to have a major breakthrough in your business. You're hungry for change and you're hungry for growth, and that's why you're feeding your mind right now with all this valuable information. But to drive those changes, to be really smart about what you're doing and to make the right choices before you take massive action, you need help from someone who's been there, someone who's going to coach you through it, even just someone to get you started on your journey. That's why Tony Robbins is offering a free one-to-one business strategy session from one of his top business coaches, a $600 value, completely free, no strings attached. That's right. If you're listening right now, you can go to TonyRobbins.com CEO and sign up for a free session with a member of Tony's team who's helped business owners like yourself overcome their obstacles and set them on the path to success. Welcome to the Tony Robbins Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Org. Have you ever wondered how the most successful companies make their hires? Or what makes for a winning team? Have you ever wanted to know what characteristics distinguish the most innovative entrepreneurs? Or what makes someone truly original? We do. That's why we sat down with the renowned organizational psychologist, Adam Grant. Adam is the guy that companies like Google call when they're trying to solve the big problems. He's been recognized as Wharton's top-rated teacher for five straight years. He's been named one of the world's 35 most influential management thinkers, and he's been on Fortune's 40 under 40 list. His TED Talk on original thinkers has more than 5.5 million views, and he's authored two New York Times bestselling books. Actually, he's just co-authored a new book with Sheryl Sandberg called Option B. It's about facing adversity, building resilience, and finding joy. I sat down with Adam to discuss just how businesses can get the most out of their employees, and how employees can get the most out of their jobs. We dug into the personality dynamics of givers and takers, innovators, and original thinkers. And we talked about why it's so important to not just meet customer expectations, but to exceed them. So Adam, Grant, welcome to the Tony Robbins podcast. Thank you. All right. So the first question I wanted to ask you, uh, this is a little bit of an odd one, but uh, I was looking, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the bio, um, you have this award that says goes above and beyond the call of duty for MBA teaching from Wharton. What does that mean exactly? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It just appeared one day. (laughs) All of a sudden, there was no specific example that they gave you? It's it's a mystery. Uh, I I did ask at some point, and I was told that uh, I spend an unusual amount of time uh, doing office hours to try to give students advice and uh, answering emails and fielding calls with them. But your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> uh, so when you're doing office hours, do you? I mean, since it is you know business, is do you get pitched a lot of ideas? Or do they kind of use you as a sounding board to to help figure out if there's something that they uh, should pursue? You know, they used to. And then I wrote about this bonehead decision I made to pass on investing in Warby Parker. <laughs> uh, and no one wants to pitch me anymore. No, uh, actually, the the I guess the stream of pitches has gone up consistently, um, especially after writing a whole book about original thinkers, which includes you know, a bunch of examples and data points on entrepreneurs. And I always tell them in response, look, my, my expertise is people, not necessarily you know how to run a business. 
And so you should take everything I say with as many grains of salt as you can put together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned Warby Parker because I know that's um, a story that you mentioned in the originals and you know a few times you use that as an example when you speak. But um, I ran into uh, Neil Blumenthal recently because we were at a Tony Robbins event, his Business Mastery event, and uh, as sort of a new format for that event, we had a panel of speakers. And so it was Neil from Warby Parker, it was Melanie Willen from SoulCycle, and then Joe Gebbia from Airbnb. And I asked them individually what, what was different about this. And instead of sort of responding with that, you know, oh, it was really high energy, all three of them independently said, you know, backstage before the panel, we're so used to people just saying, hey, you know, get out, tell your story, everybody's going to love it, you know, uh, the sort of standard stuff. They're like, Tony took us aside and he said, okay what can I do for you? What can I give to you now? Um, whether it's advice or, you know, some water, <laughs> whatever it is that will help you be great. Um, and I thought of that story because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is your idea of, uh, givers and takers. So people, um, are often surprised when people are openly giving just as Neil, Melanie and Joe were really surprised that Tony had been very giving before this big event. Um, I'd love to just hear a little bit about um, how you see giving and taking within organizations and how to identify those types of givers and takers. Yeah, it's it, totally fascinating to me. I, look, I always assumed, Anna, that like, the nicer somebody was, the more generous they were. And you know, if somebody seemed to be critical, skeptical, challenging, must be more selfish. And I started gathering a bunch of data and found that there was like no correspondence between those attributes. So giving and taking is all about your inner motives. What are your intentions toward others, right? Is your, is your stance, what can I do for you or what can you do for me? And there's a totally separate trait called agreeableness, which is your outer veneer. How pleasant is, is it to interact with you? And so, you know, it's easy to recognize the agreeable givers who are both nice and generous and the disagreeable takers who are just jerks across the board. But, <laughs> easy to identify. But the, yep. <laughs> exactly. But the, the other two combinations throw us off a lot. Um, there, there are a lot of disagreeable givers out there who, you know, on the surface are gruff and tough, but underneath they have others' best interests at heart. And too often we write them off and say, yeah, that person's kind of prickly, must be a selfish taker. When in reality, those are the people who give us the critical feedback that we don't want to hear but need to hear. And they're the very best champions of change because they're the people who aren't afraid of challenging the status quo. And then on the flip side, the agreeable takers are the ones that you really have to watch out for. Those are the fakers uh, who are really nice to your face and then they stab you right in the back. And I think most of the, the screening that we end up doing is, is to say, look, just because someone is friendly does not mean that that person actually cares about you. And it might be fun to chat about what are the signs that that person actually is an agreeable taker. Yeah. How can you tell? Well, one of the, the easiest patterns to look for is, is kissing up and kicking down. Takers are great fakers when dealing with powerful people because they know that's how you get ahead. You impress someone in a position of influence with your generosity. But then they learn it's a lot of work to pretend to care about everybody. And they end up letting their guard down with peers and subordinates who see more of their true colors. So it's a red flag if somebody has a great reputation upward, but it's more mixed lateral and downward. That also means bosses are the worst references on character because anybody can go to a, you know, any taker can line up a few bosses to say nice things about them. 
it's really the the people that have you know been below them or next to them who get to see those true colors. Uh, so it's almost like you need a peer review as opposed to an, an official review from a managerial team. Exactly. And you know, sometimes you don't have access to that. And the only thing you can do is is try to pick up, is there a history or you know, a reputation of selfish behavior? But sometimes you can, you can actually learn things from the conversations you have with them. So um, one of the, the things we all do when we interview people is we ask, you know, tell me about your greatest successes and failures. And we ought to go the extra step and say, tell me what caused your success and what caused your failure. And that's when you start to see that the takers are the ones who use more eyes and me's when talking about accomplishments. And they're much more likely to blame their, their failures and mistakes on other people and, and throw them under the bus, uh, which, is, which is kind of a useful thing to pick up. Yeah. And then one other, one other favorite way to, to spot an agreeable taker, especially, uh, actually, Anna, we'll try this out. So um, uh -oh. let's take a taking behavior. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> I'm um, nervous. We're, we're about to assess you. But, <laughs> okay. Um, let's take a taking behavior like theft. So stealing from your company, it could be cash, materials, merchandise, intellectual property. Mm -hmm. The question is, what percent of people do you think steal at least $10 in a typical month from their employer? <sighs> at least $10 in a typical month. I would think it's pretty high because they might, they might be doing it, but you have sort of convinced themselves that it's not stealing. Um, so maybe... 70%? Ooh, you're close on this one. Ooh. So I, I don't actually know what the real answer is. And I don't care. <laughs> okay. But I care a lot about what you think the answer is. Because oh. the data show that the higher your estimate that other people are thieves, the greater the chances that you're a thief. Oh, snap. <laughs> luckily, Busted. luckily yeah. you didn't go over 80% because then okay. we'd all have to check our wallets. <laughs> and I also, I, hey, you know what? And I moralized too. So I was thinking, oh, totally. other people might justify it, but no, I see, don't. Look, you're, you're, you're <laughs> off the hook. You're totally off the hook. But what's interesting is when, when people answer that question, most of the time they ask themselves, what would I do or what mm. have I done? And then they project that onto others. Mm -hmm. So you get an extreme taker to answer this question. And it's like, what percent of people steal $10 from their company? Because takers always talk that way. Yeah. <laughs> obviously they're like uh last week i stole 372 dollars. i'm assuming 10 a month is common 98 percent. wow or or they'll be they, they would you know almost take it to the opposite extreme and just say well everybody does it right but there must be a exactly. few a few you know goody two shoes that don't so i'll just lower it by a few percentage points that that's exactly right and that's why i like your logic so much what you see with a lot of givers is they'll just say, like, how do you even steal $10 from a company? Like, how many pens do you have to take home? Yeah. To add? <laughs> it's, it's like 45. But wow. um, the, interestingly, takers do anticipate more selfish behavior from others. Mm -hmm. And that's part of how they justify and rationalize being a taker. It's, mm. it's not me. All of you people are selfish. So I'm just being smart and cautious by protecting myself. And so the, the way that I like to apply this is say, look, no one question is ever going to you know, do the trick completely, but pick the taking behavior you're most worried about. It could be stealing credit for others' ideas. It could be dumping grunt work on others. And you know, it might even be just hoarding or hiding knowledge instead of sharing it freely. And you ask people to predict how common that is. And then if they give a high estimate, you ask them why. And an explanation like yours is, is absolutely legitimate. The deadly one is when people say, you know, I believe that others are fundamentally selfish, which mm. is code for I am fundamentally selfish. Wow. This is so tricky. I'm definitely going to use that. So 
if Taker, it sounds, you know, it's a little bit discouraging because now it sounds like Takers are everywhere. And you had an interesting quote. Um, You said, Takers rise quickly, but fall quickly at the hands of matchers. So I understand the first part, right? So they could, could potentially, because on the surface, especially if they're agreeable takers, they could rise quickly within the ranks of an organization and be in positions of power, which is frightening, right? But what are some of the ways that they either hit a limit or, like you said, they fall they fall quickly at the hands of matchers? What does that mean? Yeah, so what's interesting is relatively few of us are pure givers or takers. Um, we, we do have a default, right? So if you're a giver, you're much more focused in, in the majority of your interactions on, you know, how can I help? What can I contribute? And if you're a taker, you're much more likely to focus on, you know, how can I get ahead? But what most of us do is in the vast majority of our, our interactions at work, we choose this third style called matching where we say, basically, look, I'll do something for you if you do something for me. And that way we're playing it safe, right? We're not being too selfish. We're not being too generous. And what's great is in, in the data I have, well over half of, of people world, excuse me, worldwide self-identify as, as matchers as like that being their default style when they meet somebody new. And matchers believe in an eye for an eye, right? The just world, what goes around comes around. And when it doesn't, they're the people who love to punish takers because you know, it's not fair if you're a taker and you act selfishly and you get away with it. So matchers like to become the karma police. And if you're a true matcher, when you meet a taker, you just think to yourself, like, it's my mission in life to punish the hell out of this person right? yeah, and, and deliver the sword of down. justice. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And so then the, then the question is, well, you know, if most people are matchers and, you know, they're, they're motivated to punish takers, how do they do that? And you see that, that there's a small percentage of people who will deliberately feed takers false information to try to sabotage them. But most matchers choose a more subtle, deadly weapon, which is called gossip. And it usually goes something like this. Hey, Anna, don't trust this guy. He's a selfish bastard. (laughs) And that makes it really hard for takers to sustain their success because they can't just screw over a bunch of people and then expect to start over fresh in all their new relationships. Some of those people are going to be matchers uh, who are making sure that their reputation follows them. And that's how a lot of takers fall is – you know, they, they do enough kicking down that it, it ends up coming back to bite them. Yeah. So, you know, you just wrote an article that was uh, super interesting in your LinkedIn influencer column, and it was called How to Change a Selfish Person's Stripes. And the idea was that, you know, in many cases, we don't have control over who is in our organization. So you might have these matchers who are, you know, sort of keeping things, they're being the karma police, right? Um, but you, you know, in a lot of cases, if that's not working or if you can't fire the takers or even avoid collaborating with them, uh, how do you make the best of that situation? So are there tricks that you can use to either mitigate or even shift the behavior of a taker to one of a giver? Oh, one of my favorite questions. I don't think it's easy to, to change a a taker's stripes, Mm. but it is worth recognizing that very few people are takers in every relationship, and those people are called psychopaths. <laughs> yep. So for, for the rest of takers, right, there's some data in, from Japan suggesting that you know, less than 10% of people will just relentlessly pursue their own interests without concern for others. And so you know, the, the majority of takers um, are, you know, are, are operating that way either because you know, they, they're narcissists, they believe in a zero-sum world where if I want to win, everyone else has to lose, or they've just been burned one too many times. And you know, they kind of walked away thinking, like, I have to put myself first 
or else no one else will. And so if you, if you understand that, one of the things you can do is, is realize, look, like most takers are generous in some of their interactions or they're at least, you know, there are times when they're less selfish and you want to observe the fluctuations in their behavior and then figure out, all right, those moments where they helped others, like what did those moments have in common? And what does that suggest about, you know, is there a certain kind of expertise they love to share? Is there a you know, group of people they're passionate about helping? And then you start tailoring those requests to the the kinds of giving that you know they gravitate toward, mm-hmm. and you know then then they they start to get known for helping in that way, and then they're trapped. They have to do it, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> um, and then the you know the other way that that I think can be really effective, although I would say try this one at your own risk, is a financial services company a few years back. There's a woman named Kathy who got a big promotion. And she was told that she was going to co-lead a new team with this guy that today I'm going to call Colin because that's his name. And <laughs> she had four different people warn her, do not trust Colin. You know, he's, he's going to steal a bunch of your ideas and he's going to dump the most unpopular work on you. Watch her back with this guy. Mm-hmm. And Kathy sat down in their very first meeting with uh, together and, and did something that very few people have the, the courage to do. She said... Hey, Colin, I understand we're going to be leading this team together. And I just wanted to let you know, this is what I've heard about you. Whoa. And she shares all the reputational feedback. Wow. And Colin's so she's like, just ah. upfront about it. Totally. She just, she, she calls, she calls a spade a spade and yeah, yeah Colin sort of sheepish. And he says, I, I don't know who you've been talking to, but those people are clearly all jealous of me. Oof. <laughs> like, okay, like, now like we in know the mirror, buddy. Taken. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> But what, what's so interesting is for the next year and a half, Colin changes his stripes and mm. he shares credit. He mentors people below him. He volunteers for un, like really undesirable projects. And I think the beauty of what Kathy did is that you know, she, she made his reputation visible to him and then she gave him a chance to earn a new one. And w- what she said you know, in closing that conversation, I think really stuck, which was she said, you know, I, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I hope it's not true because I don't work well with people who operate this way. And if this is who you are, you are not going to like working with me. Hmm. Message delivered. So yeah. you know, sometimes takers don't realize that they're they're operating that way or that they're known that way and, and making it more visible to them can help them reform. Yeah. I think you, you also mentioned too, you know, as part of that is that uh, if it was clear, if you make clear to the person that their behavior is undermining their own goals, right, and they're not going to, um, they're basically acting against their self-interest. So if you can identify, right, what their outcomes are, um, and then if you're, if you show them how their behavior is not helping them achieve those outcomes, um, that's another way to sort of shift their behavior. Yeah, I think one of the the virtues of dealing with takers is that you know if if they're really that selfish, at least they're predictable. Right? If you if you know what their yeah. interests and goals are, then you know you can you can anticipate what they're going to care about. And in a world that's more connected than ever before, where relationships excuse me relationships and reputations tend to drive the economy, whether you have a service job or you work in a team or you're an entrepreneur that has to fundraise. Um, and sell in, in all of those conditions, right? In the long run, being a taker really works against you. And there are very few people who want to trust you or, or work with you. And so sometimes just helping takers connect those dots and realize like, yeah, you know, being a taker might seem like the shortest path to success, but it's also one of the riskiest over time. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should rethink that. 
Yeah. So if that's, you know, from a peer perspective, that makes a lot of sense, right? So if you're an organization, these are some of the things you can do. Um, what if you are a business owner? And I say business owner because, and want to emphasize owner, um, because one of the concepts that Tony teaches at Business Mastery is that um, a lot of people think that they're a business owner, but they're actually a business operator. So they're in the day-to-day, and they're really involved in the day-to-day operations of, of the business, which from you know this perspective, then you can, you can identify the takers, and you can really be in on the ground and help shape your company culture. But if you're a business owner, you know, you're a little bit removed from, from the day-to-day. Um, so if you're a business owner... Um, and you're, you really have uh, responsibility to create a culture where everybody can excel and where specifically, to your point, where givers can excel because they're not the ones who are rising quickly up through the ranks, right? What are some of the things that you can do um, to cultivate that kind of environment? One of the biggest mistakes that I see business owners making is they say, look, you know, we want generosity. We want people to help each other solve problems. And, you know, that's, that's the right spirit of collaboration. Oh, yeah. And they put it all, you know, in the values and the mission. It's all written down, right? It is. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then they only measure and promote and reward on individual achievements, yeah, which is you know, a yeah. great way to take, like, to create a world where, where takers succeed. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, obviously, changing that is is really critical. And so then the question is, how? Um, best example I've seen is at Corning, where they made the Gorilla Glass originally for the iPhone and the iPad, mm-hmm. and they have scientists and engineers there where they have this Corning Fellows program. If you get named a fellow, you have a job for life and a lab for life, which is pretty cool. Wow, is it like and being a, is it like being a tenured professor? Even better, I think, because <laughs> okay. you know you you have a real job, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> <laughs> but what's what's interesting is when they go to select their fellows, you know, one of the factors is can you drive you know, breakthrough innovative performance? And so, yeah, you know, like a lot of the fellows will be the lead author on a patent that's worth 100 million US or more. And most most companies would stop there, right? If you can drive that kind of innovation, we want to lock you up for life and throw away the key. Sure. Corning says, no, we're worried that competent takers will pollute the culture and that if we give them permanent job security, their contributions will dwindle over time. And so they have this other set of criteria, which includes, are you a supporting author on other people's patents? And I think this is ingenious because you know, like it, it can take a decade to, you know, to finish a patent. And there are not a lot of takers who are like, you know what, Anna, I'm going to pretend to help you for the next seven years. In the hopes that you will reward my false generosity by making me the forty-third <laughs> author on your patent, right? Not gonna <laughs> yeah, happen. Yeah, not gonna happen. It's it's the people who day in and day out, you know, share their knowledge and you know try to support each other and solve problems that end up getting those later authorships. And Corning says you got to do both. You have to show that you can drive your own results, but also that you can elevate the results of other people. And you know, I think these kinds of dual you know, performance evaluation, reward, promotion metrics, um, I think they're so key. And I guess the question for, for anyone running a business is, you know, what's your equivalent of later patent authorship? What are those signs that somebody is day in, day out contributing to the success of others? And, mm-hmm. and how do you make sure that gets rewarded? Sure. It's like KPIs for the internal culture of your company. It is, or it's like um, you know, a basketball team making sure that you measure assists and block shots, not just points scored. Mm-hmm. You know, and then and then go even further and say, all right, there are a lot of intangibles too. So you know, let's let's look at how well our team does when each player is on the court versus off the court, and know who's really improving our ability to to win and excel. 
Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's something that's really challenging, identifying those secondary metrics, but it sounds um, like it's absolutely essential for, for the company's long-term success. I think it is. And it's, you know, it's not about incentivizing giving, right? We, we don't want to motivate takers to be better fakers. Um, I think it's more about just taking away the disincentives to giving and saying, look, there are plenty of people who would love to be helpful. They just want to know that they're not going to be punished for it and that, yeah. you know, it, it is valued behavior around here. Yeah. So those are some great principles, right? This whole giving taking idea to, to building a winning team. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what it takes to build a winning company, right? So on the, the external, uh, those external markers. So one of the things that Tony um, tells entrepreneurs a lot is he just says, you know what, the, the, the core thing you need to do is you have to add more value than anyone else. So you have to meet and exceed the expectations of your customers, because when you do that, you get raving fans. So satisfied customers, it sounds like what everybody wants. That's not what you want. Those people go away. Raving fans are the ones that stay. So I'm curious. So, you know, you're an organizational psychology genius and someone who's just intensely studied human behavior and what motivates people. So flipping the switch a little bit and looking to people who are looking for, you know, product market fit, but also understanding how to position their product or their service to, you know, consumers. Um, can you give us a, an idea um, of what you think is motivating people now more than ever, right? Why do people buy what they buy? Like, what is it convenience? Is it quality price? Is there some sort of cultural shift going on where consumers are starting to value some things more than others that our audience might not be aware of? I have to say I'm really torn on this one. Um, and, you know, you, sh you should definitely not believe anything I'm about to say because <laughs> of <course not. laughs> as an as an organizational psychologist, I spend you know all my time thinking about people at work, and it's really consumer psychologists you know, who are experts on the marketing and, and yeah. customer side of the equation. But sure. you know, I think obviously like, people don't don't sort themselves into buckets, right? Like I I have a job and I'm also a consumer, and I'm not a fundamentally different person in those right. two roles. I hope. <laughs> so here's here's what I've observed. I think first of all, uh, I think Tony is right on target. You know, when, when he says, look, not just meeting customer expectations, but exceeding it is critical. And I think that's one of the mechanisms for that is actually because most consumers, by default, just like most employees, are matchers. Mm -hmm. they, they believe that generosity deserves to be rewarded in the same way that selfishness should be punished. Mm -hmm. And so when you go above and beyond for a customer who's expecting you to be fair and, and meet expectations, right, you trigger that basic justice motive to say, all right, like this, this company went above and beyond. And now, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, not only do they benefit from it directly, you know, because I'll, I'll buy more products, but, you know, I also want to spread the word and refer customers because this is a company with good values. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that one of the things that speaks to you is consumers are, are constantly asking, you know, how do I know if I can trust a company? How do I know if I can trust your products or your services? And if you look at the research, trust actually breaks down into three dimensions. There's the, the basic dimension of competence, which is, you know, are you able to deliver? Um, and you know, like, do you have the capabilities and skills to do what you say you're going to do? Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the other two dimensions are really more about character. Uh, so one one dimension is benevolence, which is, you know, do you actually care about your customers uh, or are you just about profits? Uh, and that's where, you know, actual brands can be judged as givers and takers, just like people can. 
And then the, the third dimension, which I think is, is becoming more and more critical in recent years, is integrity, which is, you know, you, you might be perfectly competent and I might see you as benevolent, but do I agree with your principles? And do I think that you're going to follow through on them so that, you know, your actions actually match your words? And you know, people don't necessarily pay a lot of attention if you establish integrity, but when you violate it, watch out. Right. That's that. That's when consumers will run screaming in the other direction oh, sure. or cry foul. Mm-hmm. And I think we're going to see in you know, in the years to come more and more emphasis placed on how to, you know, as a consumer, how do I judge whether you really have integrity and whether your words are going to match your deeds? Sure. And it's insane too how quickly things blow up. I mean, look what just happened just this past week with um, with Uber and Lyft. Right. I mean, th- just the the very idea that a a slight um, action. I mean, it wasn't like a huge thing, but it was interpreted as um, as like a, a travesty. <laughs> and, and you know, one hashtag. I feel like every brand is one hashtag away from some major negative publicity. And there are so many competitors that are just waiting for uh, to leverage the fact that it, their competitor is being criticized for something. And sometimes it has to do with politics, right? But a lot sometimes it's it's things that are outside of what's going on in the world. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but notice when you said travesty, yeah. no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, the, 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 I think we've all known as, as long as we can remember thinking about this, that the trust is you know, much easier to destroy than it is to rebuild. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, at some level, we're going to see more and more consumers um, who, you know, who feel like it's their responsibility to be watchdogs and, you know, make sure that the brands really are living up to their promises. And, you know, I think that that actually circles back to me. Then you ask like, okay, what is it that really drives how, you know, how people treat their customers. Mm-hmm. And one of the most robust predictors of whether you're going to do right by your customers is whether you treat your employees right. But there's a there's a huge spillover effect of how employees are treated, you know, on how they they end up treating their customers. And you know, that that's why I'm <laughs> I'm sort of dumbfounded every time I I see a company that says we put customers first. No, you don't put your customers first. You put your employees first. Mm-hmm. And then you can trust that your employees will be more likely to put their customers first. Yep. This actually just happened. Uh, there was an Inc. 5, uh, Inc. 5000 conference and um, the CEO of Gravity stood up and was talking to Tony um, just about what had happened recently with his company. Uh, are you familiar with that story, by the way? The Gravity? Yeah, they, they, had, they had paid like a minimum wage of 70000 a year per yes, employee, right? exactly, yep. Um, and there was, you know, there were some sort of nuances around it that kind of got put aside, but um, the gist of it was that his employees then uh, pooled together their money, and this is everybody from management to, you know, customer service, and they bought him his dream car, which was a Tesla. And Tony's point in that interaction uh, with the the CEO was, look, you know, you treated your employees like they were your customers, right? You put them first. And that is not just something where they're going to then sort of feel this gratitude toward you, but that pours outside of the walls of your company and that gets put out onto your customers. So really, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a proof point of what you were just saying. Um, 
about how important it is to really build that culture from the inside out. Um, there's also so many ways too that if you're incongruent with how you treat your employees, it, it's not a walled garden anymore, right? Like people know um, there are so many different ways, whether it's through social or you know, there's Glassdoor, the you know, offline word of mouth, the whole deal. It's it's something that you just can't keep secret. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, that's definitely something to watch out for as a small business owner. Yeah, which which is good for everyone involved, but more challenging for business owners. Yes. And there, there's actually, you know, when you th- when you think about building that culture, um, I think one of the other mistakes that I see a lot of small business owners make is they say, "Look, I have to hire stars. I only want A players." And the reality is, there's a sociologist Jim Barron uh, who studied this across industries. And he shows that if you hire people who are like the next level down in in terms of skill, but but highly motivated and you know and value generosity and concern for others, that if you just overpay them rel- by a little bit relative to what they're expecting to make, then there's a huge loyalty dividend where they feel like wow this is this is a one of a kind employer, um, and just that small amount of overpaying it might be by about ten percent, um, actually wipes out the difference in their performance uh, between them and stars. So you don't actually have to hire people who are outsized performers from the get-go. You just want to hire people who are motivated and skilled and treat them well. Sounds simple, right? Yep. Done. Yeah, right. (laughs) No, that's, I mean, that is a great hiring tip for our audience. And that's something else that Tony talks about a lot is, you know, you hire for capacity and attitude. You don't hire for for skills or existing experience. Um, And that's something that I think you can definitely get a lot of great talent if you follow those principles. Yeah. And, you know, I, I see one of the big misinterpretations of, of hiring for attitude is so many small business owners say, you know, I'm, I want to hire for culture fit. Mm. Right? I've, I've gotten that, like, you don't have to be the, you know, the best performer today or the smartest person in the room, but you have to be a fit with our culture. Mm-hmm. And this turns out to work out pretty well when you study startups. Uh, the ones that hire primarily on culture fit mm-hmm. are far less likely to fail. And they're also more likely to go public in Silicon Valley than the ones that are looking for stars or even just the skills you have today. Mm-hmm. But as the firm grows, culture fit ends up predicting the slowest growth rates when you track market cap and other kinds of metrics. And what, what happens is that you know early on, you're able to bring in these people who lived and breathed the same values and they were uniquely motivated and they were all working toward the same mission. Mm-hmm. And then over time, culture fit becomes a proxy for groupthink. Uh-huh. And you end up you know, hiring all these people who think exactly like yeah, each other. Yeah, which and stifles need... innovation, right? Exactly. You, yeah. you weed out diversity of thought. Yeah. And so you know, I, th- one of the best antidotes to that that I've seen is from IDEO, the, the, the great design firm that made the mouse for Apple. IDEO you know, ran into this problem early, and, and they said, we've got to throw culture fit out the window. Instead, let's hire on cultural contribution, where you know, when, when we look at new people, instead of asking, you know, do, do you match our culture? We're going to ask what's missing from our culture and then hire the people who are going to enrich it most effectively. And I would love to see more small business owners taking that seriously and saying, look, I've got to analyze what's absent from my culture and then bring those people in, reward them, promote them, as opposed to just trying to clone what's already working in my culture. Wow. That's great. And it's, you know, definitely, um, you know, sort of perpetuates the the growth of new ideas um, within the company, and that's something um, that you talk about to in depth in original. So I just wanted to make a quick shout out to everybody is that is listening. So this book, uh, the originals, 
it is a number one national bestseller. It's one of Amazon's best books um, as of it was as of last year. Um, Adam Grant also has written Give and Take, um, which taps into some of the principles that we talked about today. Um, that was also ranked one of the best books by Amazon, the Financial Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, it was one of Oprah's riveting reads. It's uh, Harvard Business Review uh, also acknowledged it as one of the best books. Um, so I really, really encourage all of you guys to go out and, and read more of Adam's work. Um, Adam, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, um, you have a new book in the works. Um, and I know you can't talk about it that much, but I think our audience would love to know what is next and what to look for from you this spring. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I'll, I'll try to live up to a small fraction of the, the nice things you just said, Anna. But um, yeah, so a uh, new book is coming out uh, April 24th. Uh, it's called Option B. Uh, I wrote it with Sheryl Sandberg, the Facebook COO and lean-in author. Um, and it's about facing adversity and finding resilience. Um, as I think a lot of people know, Cheryl lost her husband suddenly almost two years ago. And we spent a lot of time talking after that about how she could help her kids recover and, and find strength. And then, you know, what she could do as, as well in those situations. And uh, we we sort of ended up doing a lot of research together and uh, speaking with some remarkable people who had achieved resilience and, and built resilient communities and companies and families. And we ended up writing a, a book about how to do that. So uh, looking forward to it coming out soon. Wow, that sounds fascinating. You know, and I'm, I have to say, when when you mentioned at the beginning that, that Tony was uh, was talking to a bunch of entrepreneurs about what he could give to them before they went up on stage, uh, he, without knowing, he he actually gave something to me when I was getting ready to go on stage some months ago. Really? Uh, I, I spoke at an event that I guess he had, he had been at uh, the previous year. And uh, <laughs> I, I walked up and the the host said, you know, I, I just wondered, um, I see that you were a springboard diver. Um, have, have you ever talked to Tony Robbins about his trampoline? Oh, the and rebounder, I, I said, the rebounder. Yeah, I yes. Said, no, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh -huh. and, he, and he said, well, you know, Tony, before he goes up on stage, he bounces on a trampoline to get his energy up. Mm -hmm. And I said, wait, does that, does that mean he only speaks at places that, that have trampolines? Because as, as a diver, when we trained, we used to practice on trampolines and they were like the big gymnastics kind, right, that you see in the Olympics. Oh, sure, yeah. And that's what I was picturing. And they're like, uh. no, 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 no. He, <laughs> like, we bring a little mini trampoline. I'm like, phew. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You're like, or, you was, know, is it foldable? It Does it fit in his suitcase? <laughs> What's the deal? Yeah. Yeah, it was it was such good advice though because so often you know like you're just sitting in an audience or you know in a dark room before you go on stage mm -hmm. and then you have to stand up and you know, bring a lot of energy to the table and it's like going from zero to sixty in two point four seconds. Yeah, and it was it was such a powerful reminder for me that that I actually need to do something to raise my energy level before I get on stage as opposed to once I'm on stage. So yeah, uh, that was really cool to learn. I think you should also just start demanding it. Right. <laughs> just say before every public, yeah, before every speaking engagement you have, just put that on your list of things that you require before you go on. <laughs> you know, it's tempting. I will, yeah. I will see if that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right. Well, thanks, Adam. Thank you. The Tony Robbins podcast is directed and hosted by Tony Robbins and Mary Buckheit. Annie Org is our editorial director and occasional host. The podcast is produced by Carrie Song and Tyler Culbertson. Jamie Carvajal and Adriel De La Torre are our digital editors. Special thanks to Diane Adcock for her creative review. Copyright Robbins Research International.